Welcome to episode 355 with my guest Sam Harriman. Uh, we recorded this episode on the road in uh, Minneapolis at the, uh, or was it technically St. Paul? Who gives a shit? The people in the Twin Cities, that's who gives a shit, Paul. Uh, we recorded this at uh, Sisyphus Brewery uh, a couple of weeks ago, and um yeah, I hope you uh, I hope you like this episode. Um, I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. Uh, it's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that uh, doesn't suck and hopefully is uh, compelling in some way. The show is a part interview and part reading um, anonymously uh, submitted survey responses from uh, from listeners. And speaking of that, I want to read this one filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself uh, Codependent Descendant. And uh, this is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey and a snapshot from her life. She writes, as a five-year-old, I watched in horror as my three-year-old sister was being kidnapped from the car we were waiting in as our mother shopped. It was 1967, and for some reason it was deemed permissible to leave kids in parking lots. Uh, You could do that. You just had to make sure that there was an adult smoking in their face. Uh, As the stranger attempted to pull my sister through the car window, I grabbed onto her ankles and yanked her in the opposite direction while the man yelled at me to let her go. I saw my mom approaching and said, Mom is coming, and the stranger took off running. When the woman got closer, I realized it was not our mom after all. When my mom returned to the car, I frantically relayed this incident to her. She screamed at me and told me I could have, quote, made this up, that it was my imagination, and that I was not... I was not to mention this to my father. Um, And then the issues that she struggles with are uh, anxiety and OCD. About her OCD, she writes, uh, you didn't answer my text, so you must be dead. Let me text you again. Uh, Codependency, I'm fine once you're fine, and not a moment before that. About experiencing racial and cultural bias, she writes, Despite being a Chinese woman, I'm bad at math, good at driving, and was born in California, as were my parents. But hey, thanks for complimenting me on my, quote, good English. And about having generalized generalized anxiety disorder, she writes, The constant feeling that something is horribly wrong, and I can fix it, but I'm not there. What a great survey. Thank you for uh, Thank you for sharing that. Um, I have been pretty successful lately with, uh, not over binging on, on ice cream. And, uh, but the thing I'm discovering is there's a relationship and maybe I'm the only one that experiences this is a relationship between insomnia and sweets. And for some reason, when I have insomnia, if I get up and I eat something sweet, I can go back to bed. But I know that that is super unhealthy. So last night, I go to bed at 5 in the morning, and it's 7 in the morning, and I still can't sleep. And I'm like, okay, I need to do something, but I want to do something healthy. So what would a doctor tell me to do? And I pictured a really bad doctor telling me to eat leftover Halloween candy. So I did that, and I fell right asleep. Forgot to set my alarm. Woke up at 3.30 this afternoon. So 
I just want to put that out there for anybody who is shaming themselves for oversleeping. Put me on that graph, and uh, I have the feeling you probably came in uh, below me on, uh, on when, you, when you got up. So uh, I didn't beat myself up, and you shouldn't beat yourself up uh, either. This is a struggle in a sentence survey as well. This is filled out by uh, Neurotic Nora. And uh, she writes about her body dysmorphia. It's like wearing a sweater that's too itchy and too tight, but that sweater is your entire body. Uh, About mental illness in general. Mental illness is self-loathing and overthinking and a mind that is always, almost, is almost always a Monday. That is a perfect way to describe mental illness is every day is Monday. Oh my God. Uh, Mental illness is mood swings and self-deprivation and avoidance and fear and ugly sweaters and hyperventilation and magnification and self-loathing and regular panic attacks. Well, it sounds like you got a full day. So uh, uh, how's that for a silver lining? Uh, This was filled out by... (laughs) I just saw this name for the first time. He calls himself Finger Breaks Through the Toilet Paper. And about his binge eating, he describes it as, a good friend is finally spending quality time with me. You guys are the fucking best. Um, Everything's fine, uh, writes. Uh, This is a highlight from from her life or a snapshot from her life. And she's uh, between 16 and 19. And... She writes, uh, help me, Paul. I've been daydreaming about leaving my live-in boyfriend. I don't know if I'm just broken from my previous abusive relationship, but I can't get the thought out of my head that my current relationship is headed down the same path. I moved an hour away from my family to be with him and therefore isolated myself from everyone that I was close to. By the way, I'm not saying that if I had read this far, I wouldn't say that this guy is abusive, but just know that if he is an abusive, narcissistic manipulator, that is one of the first steps. Um, it's what predators uh, do, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, I feel like I can't talk to anyone uh, away from my family to be with him and their I feel like I can't talk to anyone. My boyfriend tends to be emotionally distant, that is, until I'm already in tears. Even that has gotten to the point where he just seems annoyed whenever I sound like I'm about to cry. Because of my depression, my sex drive plummets for weeks at a time. Lately, he seems to only want to be affectionate when he's about to get laid. Whenever I wave him off with a, I'm too tired, or I eat too much, or I'm just not in the mood right now, he rolls over and grumbles about how I'm never in the mood. I get constant reminders as to how many days it's been since we last had sex. Um, you, you know, let me just uh, comment that you know he always grumbles about how you're how you're never in the mood. Um, wouldn't wouldn't a boyfriend that cares about you ask you what's going on, want to know what's happening emotionally inside you instead of just what the results are for his needs? Um, I get constant reminders as to how many days it's been since we last had sex. We can never seem to have a genuine conversation about our relationship. Whenever I try to talk about something he did or said and explain why my feelings were hurt, he uses his favorite line, once again, I'm the bad guy. When I read that far, uh, my first thought was, 
get out of this relationship. This guy is a narcissist. He's unable to look uh, at himself, um, and he's manipulative. And you cannot change him. He would have to want to change. And um, it's probably only going to get worse. Uh, we can't have an argument without him accusing me of making him out to be the bad guy. I want to move back in with my parents and go to school, but what hurts the most about being away from home is being away from my dog. Um, my parents bought him for me as an emotional support animal after my second suicide attempt. When I moved out, I couldn't afford to take him, so my parents agreed to keep him for a few months while we got financially stable. It's been a, a year. I missed the fuck out of my baby boy. Not so do I. Uh, I love my boyfriend and I want things to work, but I am historically clueless about when to call it quits. How do I start the conversation to work on our problems? If all else fails, do I leave him? Um, you know, again, I am not a therapist. I am not an expert, but I think every single person who is listening to this is going, get the fuck out of there. Get out of there. You need support right now. And and you need what your dog can give you, which is unconditional love and consistency. And this guy cannot give that to you. So um, I vote pack your bags and peel, peel out. Don't just leave. Lay rubber. And don't try to get him to understand why you're leaving. A narcissist will never be able to understand. If this guy got help, Maybe he would begin to be less narcissistic, but um, it, you will be wasting your breath. And it's you opening up and giving him a chance to manipulate you again. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by M. And uh, she writes about her anxiety. Like, everything I do is a test to see if I deserve to live but I don't even remember signing up to take the class. Wow. You guys are so good at encapsulating your struggles in a sentence. It's, it's incredible. Hey, I want to give uh, a shout out to one of our sponsors, uh, Audible. Support for today's show and the following message comes from Audible. Get an exclusive collection of listens from the renowned relationship expert, Esther Perel. Free with a trial Audible membership. This collection includes her new audiobook, The State of Affairs, which will have you rethinking infidelity. Plus, Seasons 1 and 2 of her groundbreaking series, Where Should We Begin?, which Vogue calls provocative, intriguing, and insightful all at once. So to start your, tr your free trial, visit audible.com slash Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R. That's audible.com slash Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R. And you can start your free trial of Audible and get access to this exclusive collection. I want to also uh, thank BetterHelp for being such a consistent sponsor for this podcast. Um, I have been using them and love my uh, my counselor, and we've been working through a lot of stuff that is um, really helping me me grow. And I've shared this many times on the podcast, but um, it it bears repeating that uh, compassion in a therapist 
is hugely important. I honestly don't think that there can be any growth in a therapist if there isn't compassion because you can process things intellectually, but if you don't feel safe enough to process things emotionally with somebody, that uh, that is always going to stay kind of stuck in your soul. And um, there are times that I'm uh, I feel moved to tears by by her compassion and um, and then you throw in her insight on top of that and it just uh, it's a great combination. So I'm a big fan of her. I'm a fan of better help. And um, the feedback I've gotten from you guys that have signed up for it is uh, just great across the board. So go to betterhelp.com slash mental, uh, fill out a questionnaire, and you'll get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18 years of age. And you can correspond, depending on your therapist, through either email, live text, chat, phone or video and you can uh, again depending on the therapist do it more than than once a week and it isn't any more expensive to to do that uh and finally uh this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself john and he writes about his depression the colors have all seemed to fade from my everyday life and lately even black and white photos aren't gray enough about his sex addiction have been a photographer a marine and a widower all to sleep with women from bars and then go home and call an escort that I pay for with my bank deposit from work the afternoon that I'm paid. About his OCD, I've never felt more angry and terrified simultaneously than when I had successfully applied deodorant to my left armpit seven times, but the stick ran out and cracked after the fourth swipe under my right arm. And uh, about being a dad, he writes, I had a dad once. He left when I was one. For 20 years, I've manipulated, seduced, and fucked everyone I could just to do it and then tell myself I'm a good dad because I can remember when my kids' birthdays are. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people, and it hurt. I've just been, like, very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting and different... Extremely anxious. Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear. My first thought was I'm about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Ocean of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the Atkins diet in fourth grade. They told me I was wrong. The secrecy is what kills us. And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe, like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time. I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate you coming, coming out here. Uh, I'm surprised by the uh, the turnout, but then, you know, I remember this is Minnesota where everybody smiles, and as we know, there's so much fucked upness under people that are smiling all the time. <laughs> they have no place to let their rage out. <laughs> oh gosh darn it! I'm so mad. I could, uh, I could just almost not say thank you. Uh, I just uh, bumped into 
Sue uh, from Minnesota, NAMI, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental, Mental Illness, right? Uh, and uh, they were one of the first NAMI. There's a national NAMI, and then uh, each state can have their own uh, NAMI, correct? And uh, one of the things that she was telling me was uh, they are starting to have support groups online uh, for different maybe loved ones uh, of somebody that's uh, dealing with a mental illness or people with um, struggles themselves. So for anybody that's listening or anybody in the room uh, that may live in an area where it's tough to get to a support group or there aren't any support groups in your your area, um, check out uh, their website, which is, what is it? NAMIHelps.org. And that's the Minnesota uh, website, but that can lead you to the place where you can find um, an online support group for, I would imagine, a variety of issues, right? Uh, I'm so happy to be here, uh, very flattered that uh, they invited me to come do the podcast and then be a part of the, the comedy uh, show tonight. And uh, without any further ado, I want to welcome uh, my guest, Sam Harriman. Come on up, Sam. Oh, howdy. So uh, where, where do we uh, begin, uh, Sam? We, ju we just uh, uh, went out and got a, a, a cup of coffee. And um, so we've talked a little bit with each other. Um, the person who was originally supposed to be uh, the guest, his grandmother broke her hip. And uh, so he, being a nice Minnesotan, uh, he went to go uh, deal with that. Uh, or no, I take that wrong. He pushed his grandmother down, <laughs> and he fled the state. Uh, and uh, and he said, uh, I think Sam would be a, a, a good guest. And I uh, said, Yeah, let's uh, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. Uh, where were you raised, Sam? Well, your your main issue is uh anxiety yeah that was i mean depression um mm -hmm. in college and then after that uh, mm -hmm. a lot of anxiety um the point i found your podcast i had basically afraid to leave my house kind of situation hadn't left for around six weeks mm -hmm. before i finally realized well i really need to do something about this well if you would if you don't mind um reading the email that you sent me on 2013 yeah so this was uh march of 2013 okay uh, hey, Paul, I'm not one who normally writes fan letters, and that's still true. That's this why is the only fan letter I've ever written. It's really the reason I wanted him to read it. <laughs> I like looking good. Uh, but you are more than deserving of this one. I recently found your podcast after your appearance on the Dr. Drew podcast. I've already listened to the first 20 episodes, and I have to say I wish I had found something like this years ago. Since starting to listen, I've already been to see a counselor as well as a doctor, about getting help with anxiety problems that I've been struggling with my whole life. As a hopeful future comedian myself, I keep beating myself up for staying home at night and writing rather than going out and performing and networking. I love being on stage, but I can't take the social pressure before the show. When I first got into comedy, I thought being the funniest guy in the room was all that it took, and obviously that's not the case. The cliques of comedians who are gatekeepers to success seem like an impossible mountain to climb for an introvert with social anxiety. Learning that I'm not alone in what I deal with mentally has changed my perception of all that. While I realize things aren't going to get better overnight, 
I finally feel like they have at least a chance of getting better, a feeling that I haven't felt in a really long time. So hopefully a few years from now, I'll have you to thank for helping to kickstart my professional career. If not, I can at least help you for, uh, or at least thank you for helping me take some steps in the right direction for myself and all my other relationships, both in the past and in the future. And that is no small feat. Thank you for all that you do, and I look forward to listening to the rest of the episodes. And I emailed him back, and just uh, one word I wrote, yawn. (laughs) (laughs) Which in hindsight was a little cruel. (laughs) But uh, just to update you, um, this is Sam's Brewery. That a year after he emailed me that, um, he took his passion for home brewing and... uh, Made it a career. Made it a career with uh, with this place. It's a pretty surreal moment for me right now, reading this to you on uh, the yeah. comedy stage I, that I built. So <laughs> I grouted this brick wall too. If you Did didn't you? know that, yeah. Uh, so let's let's take it back to. Uh, your childhood, where did you grow up? When did anxiety first kind of present itself? And I would imagine depression is also uh, in there somewhere. It's pretty rare that you meet somebody with anxiety that doesn't also uh, have have depression. Yeah, so I grew up uh, about an hour north of the city's small hobby farm just out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I unfortunately had a crazy mom that mm-hmm. uh, made living uh, with her very difficult. Uh, my dad uh, was a traveling salesman, so he was home maybe two, three days a month, uh, leaving us with her most of the time. So mm-hmm. kind of anxiety started, I mean, in hindsight, it was my entire life, but uh, really kind of came to that peak um, a few years ago. Now, when you say uh, crazy mom, can you can you be more specific? Give me some... Uh, I have my favorite hint. crazy mom story. Yeah, okay. We were talking about Little League, and it jumped into my head. Yeah. So this was during the time period where hydration for kids wasn't, like, encouraged, but it wasn't discouraged either, you know? Yeah. Like, in the 70s, well, it was like, you need water, yeah. pussy, come on. <laughs> hydration is a very, very controversial topic. <laughs> And I don't want to take one side or the other because I know there might be some dehydrated people <laughs> and I don't want to offend them. But most of them have passed out and won't hear me. <laughs> Go ahead. So, the, yeah, this was like only during the days when it was like really hot. You know, it was like mm-hmm. over 90. It was like, oh, you guys better might want to bring some water, you know. There wasn't like ample water at this point yet. My mom, though, was getting sick of all the other kids on the baseball team um, drinking my brother's water off the bench. So uh, one day she just decided, I'm going to put a decoy water bottle filled with distilled white vinegar on the bench so that, you know, that'll teach them. (laughs) And so she brought it to the game, and she didn't get the courage to go through and put it on the bench. Um, So this makes the story even worse, because she just had it by her side, and after the game, one of the kids was like, hey, I, I could use some water. She was like, yeah, you could have this water. Knowing it was the vinegar. Knowing it was the vinegar. And then as he drank it, she yelled at him, that'll teach you to drink somebody else's water. (laughs) (laughs) So I feel like that gives my mom in a pretty quick nutshell, like just plotting all the time. Wow. Oh, my God. 
So what what were her issues other than um <laughs> uh, she's just like really emotionally unstable. You never yes. knew um where she was going to be and for what reason. Um so it was just always all over the map and and she had that like if she saw there was a wrong in the world in her mind, like this water situation, she was going to fix it in whatever way she thought, you know, versus yeah. like, hey, maybe I'll just bring extra water for everybody and be like, right. here's water, you know, next time maybe bring some. So it's it sounds like uh, there was almost a, um, that she was drawn to situations where she could uh, feel like she was a victim. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's um, basically, her, I mean, her whole life is kind of, if she'd summarize it, is as just woe is me for everything. Yeah. My dad, um, he started his own business and um, I mean, became a millionaire from that. And she, when he went to retire, she just flipped out on him like, how dare you retire and do this to me? You're going to ruin my life kind of thing. Um, so it's just like every, anything, any situation. Was about her. Every, yeah, everything was about her. And the sad thing is, is people like that, there really is like some childhood trauma. But instead of them dealing with that, it's then it gets projected onto everything else in their life. And it's like you want to have empathy for that little girl that she was. And it sounds like really still is as an adult. But it's so hard because they make it so difficult to connect to. Um, it sounds very much like like my mom, you know, when she would accuse us all of being martyrs, and that was kind of the very thing that she would, um, the role that, that she would play. And somebody gave me, a listener gave me a, a book one time called uh, Understanding the Borderline Mother, and uh, um, Christine Lawson, I think, is the, is the author of that. And uh, she breaks it down into four kind of archetypes, and the martyr is one of the um, archetypes of uh, the borderline uh, mother. And it, for people who aren't familiar with borderline personality disorder, it's not uh, limited just to uh, females, obviously. But uh, it, they tend often to get stereotyped of, you know, the quote-unquote hysterical woman. There's a lot of really kind of offensive uh, stereotypes about borderline personality disorder. And it's really kind of a heartbreaking a personality disorder because it makes um, their their uh, central kind of fear is uh, of being abandoned, and then without having tools to communicate with people, they wind up burning bridges, and the very thing they fear becomes the life that they they. Yeah, live no, with. that sounds. I haven't read about the borderline. I mean, I know like with my therapist, kind of. The narcissistic mom kind of thing, but yeah, that sounds very uh, yeah, upper and, alley too. And and I'm not uh, trying to uh, diagnose either of our mothers, but a mm-hmm. lot of it rang true when I when I read that uh, read that book. So uh, share some more uh, moments uh, if you if you could from uh, from childhood, and especially any moments you can think of that that uh, kind of encapsulate what how you viewed yourself and how you viewed the world around you and how you fit in it. Um, one thing that was huge for me growing up with, uh, my mom was really obsessed with, with my asthma, as she called it. Like, and uh, she tried to reassure me one night by being like, your asthma is so bad, you might die in your sleep. But 
don't worry, I check on you. So if that were to happen, I would be there. Like, well, I'd be dead, so... <laughs> I don't <Wow>. care. <laughs> wow. So, like, my asthma became... Um, I actually later on in life learned that... Um, I, I honestly probably believe I'd never even had asthma, that it was panic attacks the entire time. Because oh. uh, when I started going to therapy and, and treatment and stuff... Um, uh, just another random asthma memory. My mom sent me to asthma camp when I was 10. <laughs> You've got to be. <laughs> asthma camp. Asthma camp. I don't even want to know what the activities sounded like. <laughs> My favorite was medication time. <laughs> yeah. Because we just sat in a circle and said our names and ages and like what drugs we were using. And then you were supposed to like take your turn. And then the next person went. You'd hit your little inhaler yeah, after yeah. you. It's like my name's it. Sam. I'm yeah. ten. I do Ventolin and Albuterol. <laughs> and then the next kid would go and all the way around. Did anybody ever go? Uh, just a minute. I got to catch my breath. <laughs> <laughs> but when my mom dropped me off for asthma camp, and I mean, she lived. I mean, her entire world is just. Uh, scared, you know, fear. I mean, she does not live a day without extreme fear yeah. of something happening to me or her or whatever, just people that she knows. Um, but she was really afraid that me or my brother was going to get sexually assaulted at some point. Where, like, all strangers were not to be trusted kind of thing. Like, any guy you see is just waiting to sexually assault a, a small child. Like, yeah. that was kind of how she viewed it. And um, sadly, when she dropped me off at asthma camp, she handed me like an LED flashlight keychain and was like, here, Sam, I want you to take this in case somebody tries to rape you. <laughs> Where are you leaving me? <laughs> and how does that help? So you can see them raping you? <laughs> yeah. You, no, you put it in their eyes, she said. Yeah. That'll annoy them slightly. <laughs> yeah, for real. I have no idea what her plan was, but... I just remember taking it being like, wow, camp is not what people told me it is. <laughs> it's like, what do you, th as, as you recall these things, what are your feelings towards your mom? Now that you know more about mental illness, does it? It makes me sad to think yeah. about it just um, because it, you know, I, I didn't know what the end result was of seeking treatment was, but it, you have to try, right? And she's never tried in her, in her entire life. And so she just lives in the same state, in the same world with these views that aren't even correct, you know? But it, to she's getting old and, you know, doesn't want to kind of destroy this thing she's built, even though it's really nothing in the end. Yeah. So, so it makes me sad, like, just yeah. do something, you know? But she's so broken she can't, I guess. Do, do you feel any relief in having that clarity, or is it just kind of sadness about it? I mean, I went through the journey kind of like, uh, so when I first started doing stand-up comedy, I, I wasn't even really aware. Like, I just did it for fun. I wanted to start going to the open mics because I've been told my whole life by my parents, like, we're a really zany, fun family, you know, like all of our memories are funny. And so I started thinking, like, oh, I could probably come up with some funny stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, that's not funny at all. That's actually really hurtful. <laughs> so, like, there's just that, like, unraveling of, of my past as I kind of reflected on it. And then the realization, like, wow, she's always kind of been this way. Mm -hmm. And, like, it just made me kind of, I kind of view my life 
two parts like that part you know and I can't really say where the new part started but that just doesn't even feel like me when I look back at it it's just kind of I learned from it, it it's part of my past but I've kind of grieved it already you know and, and come to terms with what it was what what was if you can recall what was it like uh, when you went through the period of, of cre- grief uh, thinking about what that little little boy actually went through and what he uh, didn't didn't get that every kid should get uh, I think I mean going through that the hardest part was trying to get my parents to kind of uh, come around you know I put a lot of effort into that like you know you guys should probably go talk to somebody kind of thing so I'd say that that was like kind of the bottom of, of how, what I was feeling like depression wise like sadness about it because it was just like I wanted them to acknowledge my experiences and my past but um, obviously in most cases of abuse you don't normally get that yeah. and so like uh, which for which a long time I was really like sad about that tear the, the, the wound even even more I, I think if especially if you have this belief in your head that getting them to see is possible because as I think most of us know for some people it's it's not possible and that can keep you in a state of rage and sadness and depression um, but I, I cut you off go ahead you were no I don't I lost yeah. my train of thought there um, so uh, try, trying the bottom was trying to get them to see to have the same clarity that you had but you you couldn't uh, you couldn't get yeah them just there. trying to get them to acknowledge it and, yeah. and my dad actually uh, did start going to therapy for a little while and talking to people he he had uh, panic kind of stuff come up later in his life um, but once he kind of started doing that my mom just grabbed him and pulled him back in you know you don't need to go talk to anybody everything's fine you have me so I mean that was that was kind of all that bottom period where it's like dad was kind of going in the right direction, mm-hmm. taking some, taking some steps to get better, and mm-hmm. mom just stopped it, and and that's where they still are now years later. Wow, it's uh, it's amazing how much we are we the horrible familiar how we're willing to cling to that instead of the uh, promised better that that we haven't experienced. It seems like, you know, being a recovering addict, alcoholic, uh, you know, there comes a point in your life where you're like, I can continue numbing myself and inching closer to suicide, or I can go meet a group of people that have a new way of living I need to think about this. Yeah. And, th- and that is an actual thought process. The idea of being vulnerable and changing your worldview is so... Why do you, why do you think that is? That, that it's... I th- why is it so hard to change? Like you're, why is it so scary for us? Well, I mean, you're kind of, like you said, leaving behind everything you've known, you know? Like, um, and if you don't have the self-confidence or... or um, ability to like take in new information and make it part of your world now you know mm-hmm. it's just people don't like that you know we want things to stay the same so they're predictable so we know exactly what we're going to get out of every situation even if what we get isn't good you know what I mean I think people just like to be like self-fulfilling prophecies almost mm-hmm. like I would rather be right than try something 
and miss a little bit and take work to get to what this, you know, this yeah. non-existent destination that does exist, you know? Yeah. And, and it's like, I think, well, I know the script for the horrible play. Exactly. Uh, so I'm just going to go watch that one again. Yeah, um, and, and be right, you know? And I, we like, as, as people, we like being right. Yeah, that that makes sense, and I th- I think there's there's something too about um, our attitude towards what the future holds when when we've experienced neglect and been let down so many times. It's like we extrapolate that in our idea of what the future is going to be, and then you throw some imagination in there, and it's like you can really turn it into a future shit show <laughs> in your brain. Sure. And if you think about it, how many times have you been right about what you predict years ahead? Uh, I don't know about you, but I've never been right. I would have never imagined that I'd be in Minneapolis uh, <laughs> two in the afternoon uh, talking about mental health. At a brewery, too. At a you brewery. I guess that part. <laughs> and I'd be sober. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what, what was the... Uh, the next step. You had the clarity uh, on it. What was it like giving up uh, the idea that they would eventually see the way you saw? I mean, I, I, it was honestly like a, a grieving process. Like, I don't have contact with, with my parents anymore. It's just not even worth trying any, at this point, you know? And uh, it's just, to me, it's basically like I grieved a loss that mm-hmm. they're kind of in a world that I don't even live in anymore. It is sad when you get to that point where there isn't an overlapping reality with uh, somebody that you wish you could have a mutual uh, love for. Um, and that if you are going to love them, you have to love them from afar, care about them from afar. And I think a lot of people think that that's not love if you don't let somebody in your life that's not love but uh you know i think it's important to have compassion for others but not at the expense of compassion for yourself i agree i also kind of just you know it's easier to love her as like almost like a concept now like Mm -hmm. that was my mom she did her job to get me to this point she didn't do a great job with the emotional mental health side of it and like that's just what I was given, you know, to feel regret about it. I just feel like it's a waste of time at this point. Like, yeah. I like the life I build for myself and the future I see for myself. So, I spend more time focusing on that than I do kind of the things that I missed out on. Like now, how do I how do I add those back in? I know what I'm kind of missing now, you know. Uh, so, after this question, you, please share about how you do add those back in. But I wanted to ask: Do they uh, try to contact you? Yeah, they do, with really lame reasons. Like, yeah. I need that bruschetta recipe you cooked six Christmases oh. ago. <laughs> like, emergency bruschetta preparation over here. So they're, they're uncomfortable expressing emotional needs. Uh, yeah, very. Very. My dad actually got a little better about it when he started going to therapy, because I think he kind of had some realizations about his childhood and stuff. But... Um, yeah, other than that, there's not been much any kind of connection. So you went through the grieving process. Um, oh, what was the question that I was going to uh, have you follow up with? Forgot. So we both have ADD. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the question? How did you uh, begin to fill in uh, the things that you weren't getting, adding the, the 
intimacy that you craved? Uh, I mean, I th- just healthy relationships and um, healthy friendships where it was like mutual shared hobbies. Like we were talking about the woodworking shop and just like getting somebody to come over and show interest in what you're doing. Like I didn't even have that growing up. Um, one of my stories about my dad. So I got my MBA from a college here, Hamlin, mm-hmm. and I was wearing a Hamlin University T-shirt. Um, he came over one day and said, "Hamlin, who do you know that went to Hamlin?" And no. I was like, uh, "That was me, Dad." <laughs> no, no. Then he followed that up by sa- by saying, "Oh yeah, I was thinking of your brother," and I was like. That doesn't make sense because I know my brother, you know. So if who who I know went to him was my brother, it would just yeah. be like it was Tom, you know. <laughs> that, my just, that just reminded me of a of a dad moment uh, when I was graduating from college. Uh, my dad, <laughs> I told him that uh, I wasn't going to go to graduation because I just didn't. Uh, I spent an extra year, and all my friends had already graduated, and I've just never been big on ceremony and tradition. It just sounded boring, and my dad went, oh, thank God. <laughs> he said, I was going to pay you for me to not come to your graduation. <laughs> you should have taken that money. I should have. <laughs> I should have. Did he give you a dollar amount? Or? <laughs> I think it was like $500. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, which I could have used. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember, like, I know there was something nice in what you said, but I'm having trouble <laughs> finding it. Um, but I'm very much like my dad, so I kind of understand the the intense uh, desire to not be bored or inconvenienced. <laughs> uh, so you began to add healthy relationships. Uh, kind of listening to my uh, just my what I wanted to do like um, part of my mom um, narcissistic part was my interests were her interests you know mm-hmm. so I wanted to play hockey in third grade all my friends were signed up for hockey she came home and told me that I was signed up for figure skating lessons because it has ice and skates you know it's close enough so I was like okay that didn't last long thankfully yeah. and then I wanted to play drums in a band so I had to take piano for two years to play drums. And then when the time came to sign up, she was like, got you a clarinet. There's no drums coming into this house. It's like, but I was taking the piano lessons for the drums. So yeah. a lot of moments like that where I just finally started uh, I gotta adding side, my I, hobbies. You know? I got to side with your mom on the drums. Oh, man. I, I just honestly, feel it in my body, though. I was yes. supposed to be a drummer. No, no, no child is worth listening to them learn how to play drums. <laughs> I know the Dalai Lama as a child doesn't get drums. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so did you? You then b- began to. Uh, it, God, I hate this term, but like reparent yourself as. Yeah, I mean, uh, getting back into your hobbies, doing nice things for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. Listening to your instinct instead of saying uh, this person wouldn't approve or you know. Exactly. It, so uh, I mean, even like my college experience, like my mom wanted me to, me to be a doctor. And I've always kind of had those moments. Like I never wanted to do that. And like I did all the pre-med classes. I was studying for the MCAT. I took the MCAT. But it was just one night I was like, I really don't want to do this. Why am I doing this? And I feel like that was one of my first moments of kind of uh, recovery where it was like I wasn't in treatment or therapy yet. But I had that voice. And like that was the voice I kind of clung on to when I did start the 
kind of snowball process of getting treatment for anxiety. It's like, there is somebody in there that I should be listening to, you know? Like, they know what's up. Yeah. How accurate was your idea of uh, your anxiety or depression before you began to seek help? And if it was different than how you view it now, um, what do you remember thinking or feeling kind of when you uh, realized how depressed and anxious you were? The biggest moment for me was, um, like we touched on the asthma thing, and when I got into treatment, I was still having daily asthma attacks, but... He used uh, air quotes for listeners. Oh, yeah. They Sorry. were panic attacks. I've been attacks. using those quite a bit, actually. Yes, I'm not they, good at this live <laughs> podcast. Thing. They were panic attacks, right? Yeah, they were okay. panic attacks, okay. and uh, kind of like, I just had a ritual that um, helped, because I would go to find a bathroom, use my inhaler, kind of just like calm down a little bit, and there was one night when I was at home, and I was like, oh, no, I'm having an asthma attack, and I just said, oh, what if I wait five minutes and see what happens if I'm having an asthma attack or not. And ever since that day, it was just like, it was just like a light bulb came in my head. I was like, holy shit, my, this could have been my entire life. This, I mean, it was for sure the most recent like five years where I would say it was for sure panic versus asthma. And it just made me question like everything I've kind of experienced. Like, wow, what if I never had an asthma attack? That was just my mom's anxiety of her viewing me, you know, maybe I had a cold, or you, know, you can come up with reasons why somebody might have a respiratory issue without asthma, you know? So that, just that kind of change in my brain was like, made me start questioning everything. And to me, to even think back to that person, I kind of just view it as a different, different life. Like, I'm glad it's there as like a reminder of how far I've come. But yeah, it's just such a shift, it's crazy. You said that you would uh, go into the bathroom uh, when you, when you before you knew that it was uh, a panic attack and you thought it was an asthma attack. Uh, was that to get away from people or because you didn't want to use your inhaler in front of people? Um, probably both, actually. Because yeah. those, I mean, public places were the yes. big kind of trigger for me, social situations. Um, so, yeah, it was just really easy to find a bathroom, you know, and you're on your way to class and... Yeah. deal with this asthma attack. I just yeah. love the idea that you are like, I don't want anybody to know I'm using an inhaler. I want them to think I'm taking a shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, bad idea in hindsight. but <laughs> Not that taking a shit is bad. but uh, Well, as often as I was going, that's, yeah. that's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, so... You had this clarity. You were starting to do uh, nice things for yourself. You realized they weren't uh, panic attacks. Um, if you can think of any moments when you began to experience the life that you didn't know was possible for you. Um, one time, so I started getting into camping when uh, that was always something I wanted to do. Um, just backpacking, going out into the woods. And I like playing harmonica when I'm out there. Mm -hmm. and, oh, you're uh, one of those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Drums and harmonica. Yeah. The angel song. Uh, your mom might have been right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, but just, I mean, it was just like such a little, little moment, I think, you know, for some people. But for me, it was a huge step. But I was playing harmonica like on a, a dock. And past me, because some people walked up behind and were just kind of checking out the scenery, I would have stopped playing and just waited for them to leave because I didn't want to bother them, you know? Yeah. And it was just kind of like a moment of like, ah, you know, I was here first enjoying this moment and they can keep moving on if they don't like it. 
And like that was just wow. really big for me. Like that's amazing. I mean, listening to that, I, that's I think for anybody that is kind of a people pleaser or grew up, uh, you know, want, just who do I need to be to fit in for the room to feel comfortable? That's yeah, that's gigantic. And so, just like kind of took that as a another a stepping point to, you know, I I want to live my life in the world too, kind of thing, you know, and might get in some people's way but not in the way my mom taught me it would you know i'm not causing any harm to anybody i'm not negatively impacting somebody's emotions in the way that she would have had me believe you know and like just getting free from all that like um the freedom from you know or realizing you don't have the impact that you were taught you did you know like you can just live your life and be happy it's like it's so crucial for us to be able to embrace what is authentically us and understand where the boundaries are between our authenticity and other people's space or feelings or whatever. And it, and it seems like um, the struggle when you're raised in a crazy environment is you, the things that are authentic to you, you don't let out at all and then the things that you shouldn't be having other people deal with, you're you're putting on their plate. Maybe I should just speak for myself, but uh, I I had it all reversed. It was like the things I should have kept to myself, I was you know laying on other people, and then the things that I should have been expressing, I was afraid of being rejected. Does that? Do you relate to that at all? Uh, I relate. To, I kept the the stuff that was me inside just because like if I put it out there nobody cared like I might you know my dad didn't know where I went to college my mom only cared if I was doing stuff she wanted so like my stuff I just that was mine you know mm-hmm. I didn't want to share that with them but I feel like my role was more the placator you know kind of thing so like I wasn't really putting anything out there I wasn't putting any like I was just kind of there as like a place filler to like placate mom when she got too upset you know so I wasn't really contributing any of them, like I wouldn't say I was like a pro, like I was well behaved, you know, like didn't have outbreaks, outbursts, no, never got in trouble, like good student. Mm-hmm. Like I just filled that role, like shut up, don't say anything unless I need something, you know? Like I just tried to put absolutely nothing out into the world because it was going to get negativity coming back yeah. towards me. Can you remember any other moments where you began to kind of claim your uh, authenticity? I mean, opening this place was huge for that. Um, doing comedy was a huge step for me. It's just something I'd always wanted to do and finally did it kind of thing. Um, just lots of little moments. Um, camping, you know, I drove up to Canada last um, fall and just dispersed camp, which is you can stop any state forest. You don't need a, a, a site. You can just camp anywhere you want in the woods. So Really? Yeah, just went 10 days with my, uh, well, that time I didn't bring my dog, but have gone camping like down to the south with my dog just those kind of things that i would have been absolutely terrified to do before like what would the fear have been before uh i'm gonna die somebody's gonna kill me in the middle of the night like those are the kind of things like my mom was really afraid of that too Mm. so like i mean i was just afraid to be outside you know going outside was scary like yeah just i can't even do it i'm too afraid to leave my apartment so any other moments that you can think of uh, of kind of claiming? 
Those are the big ones, I think. Yeah. Well, then talk about um, starting this project, this the the brewery. I mean, I look around, and it's like just the thought of how much work and planning and thinking and day-to-day effort that goes into something like this just makes me want to take a nap. <laughs> and, and for somebody that has anxiety and depression like you have, um, well, I understand why it's called Sisyphus Brewery. There you, you know. go. Or is the uh, guy pronounced it when I was checking into the hotel last night, Syphilis Brewery. <laughs> Which... Uh, there's a problem with the American education system. Yeah, yeah. There is. I said to him, I think that's a different brewery. <laughs> and they give that away for free. So talk about the, uh, how it went from being a home brewing, being a hobby, to you getting the, the courage and the energy to, to do this. Because if I'm not mistaken... To start a business like this, you need to go out of your house? At first, you don't. No? There's a lot of paperwork and stuff. Uh, no, yeah, I mean, it, I've always wanted to own my own business and kind of be my own boss, and that's kind of what I realized um, when I was studying to be a doctor in undergrad. It was like, that's going to put me in a world I don't even want to exist in, you know, like super structured. Um, just I just feel like I would get monotonous, you know, so I've always known I wanted to be kind of in charge of my own destiny, and I was just kind of waiting for the right idea. Like, when I started doing comedy, I really liked that, because I thought, oh, maybe I could do this and make a living, and then it was kind of like, oh, I don't really like this either. Like, you know, comedy is a grind, as, as you know. Like, yeah. um, just the process of becoming a paid comedian, it, it just did, that didn't interest me either. So, like, all of a sudden, I had this idea of combining a live uh, comedy space with craft beer, which is super popular in, in Minnesota. And I was kind of into early stages of my treatment, um, going to therapy. And I just wanted it so bad, and I could see it, you know? Like, uh, I was scared, obviously anxious, like, well, will it work? Will it, want, will it not work? Kind of thing. But I figured, well, there's only one way to find out is let's do this you know same way I, I eventually left and got better in terms of anxiety is just whatever the task is I'm just going to do it and uh, that's where the name comes from too it's uh, Albert Camus is a French uh, philosopher mm-hmm. and he car- compared uh, the human condition to Sisyphus mm-hmm. and he's, his thing is that um, the confrontation with the absurd as he calls it and the absurd is man's ability to understand his place in the universe and desire a meaning but the fact that the universe will never give that to us, and even if it did give it to us, it might not give us any boost, or you know, it might not be the answer we want. Like, um, you know, what if we were all here just like, uh, you know, raising plants for an alien that comes and collects them later? And we're told that, like, does what that did you really? Hear? <laughs> I'm ga- I get the same uh, <laughs> same transmissions. <laughs> But you know, some, you can think about something like that, where we would yeah. be given a, a greater purpose by something that exists outside of us, and us being like, "Yeah, but really, is that it?" Because I don't think that's it. Um, so that's kind of what he he says. We all are in that state where we want this grand meaning and grand plan and purpose for why we're here. But really, all it is is you and a rock, and you get to choose what's in front of your face. You know. So for me, that was the process of starting a business. The everything that goes on in the back to make good beer. 
like buying new tools that we need to make good beer like whatever the task is for that day it's just like i'm glad i'm here to face it i'm gonna push it i don't know how high this mountain goes but again there's only one way to find that out too just keep pushing and how did give us some snapshots along the way of uh i imagine there had to be moments where you questioned uh (laughs) how big of a rock you chose and whether or not you had the energy to keep pushing yeah for sure i mean so when we first opened we were basically out of money like if we hadn't opened we opened uh early july if we hadn't opened in july we wouldn't be here today having this conversation so it was very like um you know lessons learned about construction construction management timelines stuff like that dealing with the city um so i mean all of that was very challenging to face especially with the anxiety but Mm. i was just glad i had done the work ahead of time to be prepared when i face those situations to be able to use my tools Mm-hmm. Um, mindfulness, meditating, yoga, um, camping, just a variety of things that help alleviate the stress and just the reminder of like, okay, this was what I signed up for. It wasn't going to be a cakewalk the whole time. Uh, were there ever uh, meds involved? Medication? Yeah. Yeah. One of the biggest ones that helped me was uh, beta blockers, um, which are like, they help suppress the physical symptoms of anxiety. Mm-hmm. And that was... Um, hugely helpful for me um once i kind of figured out the panic attack thing i told my psychiatrist and she was like you know let's try these because it sounds like you really have a lot of physical anxiety and um i kind of didn't realize how intertwined those were until i started taking the beta blockers Mm -hmm. and that really helped me kind of get to a new level where you know your body's telling you it's scared when you shouldn't be Mm -hmm. and now my body was finally like oh yeah this is how we're supposed to be most of the time. Isn't Not it, scared. Isn't it amazing how sometimes you don't realize you had something until it goes away? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So do you still take them, or that was just temporary? Uh, I still have them, um, to t- like the just take as needed kind of thing. I gotcha. uh, don't really need them anymore. And you don't need a prescription for those, correct? No, you do. I think. But oh, you do. Yeah, okay. it's the she has said like they're really benign. Like um, professional golfers take them just yeah. for their golf game kind of thing. So. Yeah. It's good to know that life-changing medication is out there for golfers, but not <laughs> not the average person. Uh, you're, uh, you introduced me to Catherine, who is your... Um, uh, business partner. Your business and partner. And ex-wife. And ex-wife. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you guys get along well, it seems like that. We do, yeah. Yeah. So, um, what was her role in you in you starting uh, this, or were you doing it by yourself then? No, we did this together. Okay. Yeah, and uh, kind of part of like the therapy piece and why Catherine and I aren't together anymore is uh, I kind of realized that like having kids was one of those things I'd just been told I wanted, mm-hmm. and uh, that voice in my head I was like, man, I don't want kids, you know. And uh, Catherine really does want kids, and we kind of were able to separate amicably because of that, that it wasn't anything toxic or whatever. It was just we both grew so much um, through this process and therapy process that we kind of realized we're not romantic partners anymore. But we're great business partners. Um, and did, did you do joint counseling uh, together or was it just individual? Just individual. Uh, and so... As you were starting this business, uh, you were still married, correct? Correct. Um, were you able to express uh, to her what you were experiencing inside, in terms also in terms of 
asking for help because I know a lot of times people that have social anxiety we just want to do everything by ourselves like the biggest fear is saying hey can you help me with this I don't know how to do this uh, I'm assuming that was the case with you with some things or am I wrong uh, a little bit yeah. uh, I mean I just she, she just was very validating of my of my feelings and like yeah you, you should get some help I was just so done with it that I was ready to and me starting to do that kind of uh, helped Catherine like see some things in her life too so that she started going and getting mm-hmm. uh, counseling and taking medication too so yeah. I kind of, we kind of just the entire time we've known each other been there supporting and pushing each other right. uh, I was speaking specifically of the help in starting the business oh in the business yeah yeah, uh, yeah I mean we did everything when we were here I mean there's concrete um, joints under these floors that we filled with two-part epoxy like just with a giant cock gun you know so like we were here for each other to do the random tasks that came up and also just to keep each other sane throughout mm-hmm. I mean we cashed in our retirement accounts to do this like we believed in it that much and even though we both had anxiety we had a strong enough kind of belief in the business and, and our idea that uh, we were just able to plug ahead kind of thing was there a moment when you realized, um, wow, I think this is going to work? For me, that was the first comedy night we had here, um, which I think was like late August. So we'd been all, almost open like two months. And it was just packed out there, like uh, standing room only kind of thing. Tons of people here. And that was like my main goal for this place was obviously to make good beer, but also to give comics in the Twin Cities a really good spot to come perform and do comedy because. As you know, you know, playing to a room with nobody in it is not that much fun. Yeah. Uh, but playing to an audience that wants to be there and, and is it a setting for comedy like we're in now, I mean, it's, it's night and day. Um, so that was just like so cool for me to see the local comics start coming out and just like leaving being like, oh my God, I can't believe there are so many people there. And ever since then, that's just how it's been. You know, we went from doing one show a month to a weekly show. And I just love coming in here every time that the show's about to start and just seeing all the people here like waiting for it. It's it's surreal. It's it's amazing. And it's you found a way to combine your two passions, home brewing and uh and comedy. That's Yeah, I get to stay close enough to comedy to just uh entertain myself. It's kinda nice. Get to come watch the shows on the weekend. Yeah. It's pretty fun. So one of the things you shared with me when you were giving me the tour is uh, not wanting to expand beyond a a certain point. Can you talk about that? I think, um, well, these people haven't seen my beautiful car, but you did get a... It, do you want to describe? Or? Um, Somebody's shit, seen my car. Shit can sounds <laughs> about right. Um, I was, uh, let's put it this way, Ralph Nader wouldn't get in it. Uh, and the radio is a Bluetooth speaker. If it, <laughs> yeah, it's a 2001 mm-hmm. uh, Jeep. Pathfinder. 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 Yeah. Uh, but Find when I so many paths with that yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> when I got in it, I was like, I I like this guy because he, clearly, you know, he's running a successful business and he could afford a a nicer car, but it's not important to him and he doesn't seem to be a materialistic 
person. Not that having a nice car is a, is a bad thing. I love having, you know, mm-hmm. uh, nice things, but it doesn't seem to be a priority for you. Uh, yeah, no, priorities for me are making beer and back, which um, I was telling you, we're getting a new brew system in the next week. So right now we make only 62 gallons uh, per batch, which is two barrels, and we're getting a five-barrel system. So that was kind of my long-term plan was we make 500 barrels per year, and we're still going to make 500 barrels a year, but it's just going to be a third as much work. So I feel like that's a win for, for me. And you were saying that you don't have any desire to, uh, uh, you know, uh, put your beer out beyond the, the brewery. And can you talk about that and why why that that is? And I hope this doesn't come across like I am trying to sell uh, your your business, where like this is an infomercial for it, because uh, the, you know that's not my intention. But it it's, it is an outgrowth of the work that you've done and the authenticity that that you've claimed in your in your life. And I think it's kind of important to talk uh, about it. Yeah, I mean, I just have. I mean, I guess part of learning the lesson. And I mean, I grew up with rich parents, so I've already kind of had the life where. Anything you want, they'll buy it for you because that was kind of a substitute for love. So that kind of kills your passion for money real quick mm-hmm. because you've seen people with it all that really don't have that much, you know, in the end. Um, so it's just always been more for me about the, the challenge, the passion of this place. Um, you know, keeping it small, you know, I really like the idea that you could come here, um, you know, this week for comedy and then come back in two weeks and all of our beers will be different you're going to see different comedians up here so for me this was just more about creating like a really awesome space where like really cool things are happening like this live podcast you know we have musical guests come in things like that like this this is just kind of i mean it's a passion project and i don't want more than what i already have it would be so nice if more people felt that same way um I think it's changing. I mean, I think the old American mindset is you have to be the biggest and the best. But I think uh, the millennial generation, whether it's, you know, I came out of college and couldn't find a job because it was 2008. There were no jobs to be found. So, like, I think all these people that went through these steps, to they were told, I go to college, um, you know, get this job afterwards, and then everything's just gravy from there. And that didn't happen. So now I think people really have reevaluated what's important to them. And I think it's experiences, and I think it's living life with people that are close to you. I mean, I, I definitely see that with our clientele. Like, they just love coming here and the variety. You know, like, I came here last week, but this is going to be an entirely new experience tonight. And, like, they just embrace that, and that's really cool to see. Well, it's beautiful to see what, uh, what you've uh, created in your life and uh, the amount of change that you have um, brought about and that you you have created the life that that, that you dreamed of um, just by taking these little tiny steps, just by going to get help and by being willing to accept a different point of view. Um, and I hope that somebody listening, um, it encourages them to take a little tiny step and get out of their comfort zone. Um, because there there can be so much beauty uh, in our lives, and but if we stay in that stuck place, it's we never we never get to experience that. 
this place is created or was created because I sought mental health treatment and I want that to be destigmatized, you know, mm-hmm. as hard of a goal as that is, but it, it takes people doing it and being open and honest about it. Mm-hmm. And uh, for now, I think that's the best way um, anybody can help is just to offer encouragement and support when somebody says they're struggling and looking for resources. Yeah. I pick up a lot of garbage on the street, too. Does that count yeah. as service? <laughs> well, uh, Cy, who had, has set this, Cy, who was originally supposed to be uh, my guest, uh, he said you should you should ask Sam about uh, like the work he does with dogs and uh, some he's uh, he mentioned a charity or something. Yeah, so I we do um, we support No Dog Left Behind, which is where uh, I got my rescue dog from. Um, with the tap room being dog friendly, I mean, so our goal with um, we we have the Nami uh, kombucha on tap today. One hundred percent of the sales are going to go to uh, Nami MN to help support them. Um, so we just like doing stuff like that. We're in the position now where we can put out a beer for cause, donate directly to it, help create awareness through our you know, customers and social media. Um, and we just want to keep doing more of that. We had um, John Craigie. He's a musician touring with Jack Johnson right now. He was here and he did a charity for like a local uh, music group that teaches uh, kids in North Minneapolis uh, music lessons and buys them instruments. So I feel like that's also kind of the millennial trend with businesses is we're ready to kind of start giving back to to the world and helping out you know the millennials get a lot of shit but i have to say they're they're uh i see a consciousness there that almost seems as if it because there weren't any jobs and because there were these difficulties that previous generations uh had uh it seems that it is almost uh created a necessary questioning of what was told to them that they should want when they get out there in the real world and that there is a paring down and a more of a kind of a minimum minimalist uh, and purpose-driven uh, approach that I found find really uh, beautiful uh, ladies and gentlemen uh, please thank uh, Sam Harriman thanks for coming out guys what a what a great experience that was! It uh, I had such a good time that I did a comedy show that night, and that was fun. Um, and just getting to meet the the listeners and to say hi and maybe exchange a hug or a handshake. And uh, and a woman wore a Saint Herbert T-shirt, and that really made me smile. Herbert's Herbert's spirit and memory uh, lives on. Uh, I want to give a shout out to ZipRecruiter. Let me ask you this. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? What if hiring could be easier, more streamlined, less time consuming? So even when you're busy, you could still be smart about the way you hire. Well, with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting. So you receive the best possible matches. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. So find out why ZipRecruiter has been used by all businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, 
you guys can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. One more time to try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash mental. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I want to kick things off with an email that I got from Casey. And she writes, uh, I recently developed what I now think is an eating disorder. A few months ago, I was diagnosed with an ulcer. My appetite started suffering. Then a month ago, I got a stomach bug and I've been barely eating since. I don't know what it is. I've lost five pounds a week, 10 pounds in three weeks. I can't lie. I love knowing I'm thinner. And in parentheses, I'm a large woman, but I just can't eat. All food tastes rotten to me. I want so badly to eat. I obsess over food all day long. I'm starting to have obtrusive thoughts telling me that maybe it's best to lose the weight. I weigh myself every morning and every night. I have many mental issues, and I know that with those, I'm more susceptible to to developing eating disorders. I'm feeling fucked up, and my doctor won't call me back. I'm scared to tell my psych med doc because she'll probably have put have to put me in the hospital for treatment. I'm feeling lost and incredibly depressed. I just feel like giving up and letting the thoughts take over. I know I'm losing control. No one really knows what's going on with me except my best friend. I just really need to let this all out before it consumes me. Uh, Thank you for being alive and giving us your podcast. It has helped me through many bad times. And I wrote back... uh, Casey, I know it's scary asking for help because we don't know what will happen, but it has to be better than keeping secrets and trying to do it all on your own. I tried that for years and it almost killed me. We can't get help and control what help looks like. Otherwise, we wouldn't need it. At the heart of addiction and sickness is a fear of trust and opening up and letting go of control. But to grow, we have to learn how to do that. Processing your feelings, whether it's in or out of a hospital, won't kill you. But running from your feelings for the rest of your life might. At least that's been my experience. Um, I don't have any solutions to anything. I'm just a cheerleader for opening up with safe people, experienced people, and letting them help me. And if I hadn't done that, This podcast that you enjoy wouldn't be here. So um, that's just me being a cheerleader for uh, going and going and finding somebody that can help you. And I just also want to say, I think that your email and your circumstances are really important and they're shared by a lot of people who are also suffering in in, uh, silence. Suffering in silence is one of the biggest unnecessary shames, tragedies that we can experience as a human being. Because for me, some of the greatest joys in life have been connecting to somebody when I'm in that deep, dark cave or they're in that deep, dark cave and we're suddenly reminded that we're not alone and that there is love in the world. Yeah, there's a lot of hate in the world. There's a lot of unsafe people in the world. But there's also a lot of love and a lot of beautiful people. 
this is a shame and secret survey, and I just want to read part of it. It was filled out by a woman who calls herself Blue Elephant, and uh, she is uh, straight. She's 21. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Uh, I'd say more than pretty dysfunctional. Uh, she's never been sexually abused. Uh, have you ever been emotionally abused? She wrote, not sure. And uh, this is one of the reasons I want to read this is this is a classic example of how we minimize things that have happened to us. Uh, I believe I've been emotionally abused, but I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know if I want to label it as abuse, but my parents went through a four-year-long divorce, and during that time, they each trashed each other to me. I was constantly in the middle, made to pick sides and deliver messages. My mom would also manipulate me and tell me terrible things, and even when I cried, asking her to stop, she would continue. There was also quite a bit of subtle criticism. She would make me doubt myself and constantly invalidate my feelings when I tried to tell her why she upset me. That is so clearly abuse. I'm not even going to say any, anything more beyond that uh, that that is bordering on sadistic actually and i'm not saying that your mom is consciously trying to make you suffer i'm saying that your mom is a sick person and we need to separate labeling who the person is that's abusing us from what we need to do to protect ourselves and process things and um getting help is not a condemnation of somebody else's self-worth it's you embracing your self-worth. Ooh, I kind of like that. Um, any positive experiences with the abuser? Once in a while, my mom and I would have a good day. We joke around and laugh, and it makes me feel so much more confused because it made me doubt everything so much more. Now when I think about the better times, it just makes me sad and really upsets me. I'm glad that you wrote that because that is the experience of so many of us, myself included. And this isn't, again, about labeling that person as all good or all bad. It's about protecting ourselves and processing what happened to us. Um, Darkest thoughts. I think about leaving constantly. I want to leave the state for college. And if I do, I want to cut off all contact with my family and never come back. I feel terrible saying this, but I so badly want to run and never return. Here's the thing. You don't have to make a black or white decision right now. And that's one of the things that people who were raised by narcissists are usually left with is black and white thinking and believing that the world views them and will treat them the way that sick parent did. Um, I highly recommend Googling uh, an article by a, a guy named Dr. Alan Rappaport, and he wrote a five-page article called Co-Narcissism, and it's about growing up with um, a narcissistic parent. And uh, I think you'll find your life in those five pages, and it will it will help you make sense of this. Uh, darkest secrets. My mom tried to kill herself a couple of months ago. I was home with her, but I didn't know what was happening. After I got home from school, I took a nap. And later when my dad got home, this was in the middle of their divorce. He and my brother and I were supposed to move out in three weeks. He found her in their room. She was in the ICU for two weeks and I haven't seen her in months. I blame myself every day. Maybe if I had just been more caring and understanding when she was upset, none of this would have happened. It's the what-ifs that get to me. Your mom is sick, and it's not your fault, 
and you can't fix her, and you can't save her. That is the truth. I can't imagine how emotionally overwhelming that must be for you, but please, please, please go get help. This is a happy moment, thank God. Uh, A happy moment filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself Stranger in a Strange Land. And he writes, I did not experience this moment, but was told about my role in it after the fact. My wife has night terrors and nightmares since a young age and often wakes up in a panic. A few nights ago, she woke up after a nightmare and found me hugging her in my sleep. She said she had a nightmare and my unconscious response was to hold her tighter as if to comfort her. I don't remember any of this. I was sound asleep. She told me of the event next morning at breakfast and expressed that it made her feel really safe and loved, that even in my deepest slumber, I automatically try to comfort and protect her. It made me so happy for both of us. Her mere presence stabilizes and comforts me, and I do the same for her as well. Thank you for sharing that. That's really awesome. That's really awesome. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by accidentally born fucked up. Can I be late term aborted? (laughs) Oh, the names, the names you guys come up with. Uh, He writes about his depression. It's like being at the bottom of a swimming pool, but the water is perfect. And I really don't feel like floating up. God, that so perfectly captures it. There is a comfort to depression, to keeping our life small and not taking chances and it's it's like it's almost like warm stagnant water and uh yeah about his anxiety it's being at the bottom of that same swimming pool entirely out of air unsure if i'll make it to the surface before i inhale thank you for sharing that Uh, this is the same survey filled out by uh, a woman who calls herself O Cosmic Jones. And this is a snapshot from uh, her life. She writes, I was in college when I finally realized how debilitating my OCD was for my continued growth as a person. I had some sticky notes on my dorm room desk that were labeled this week, this month, and long-term goals. The guy I was dating at the time was helping me move, and when I realized that the notes were missing, he told me he had trashed them, thinking they weren't anything important. At first, I totally lost it, telling him that he had basically destroyed my life plans in that one instant. It didn't take long for me to realize how ridiculous I sounded, and ultimately, I switched gears and realized that what he'd done was liberate me from the insane neurotic structure that I've been building my life around for at least the previous 10 years. In truth, I've been making those to-do lists for myself since elementary school. Can you imagine what might be so important that a child would have to rouse herself from sleep intermittently throughout the night in order to leave herself these vital reminders? Needless to say, things changed dramatically after that incident. That is fantastic on so many levels yeah what does a middle school to-do list look like 
be embarrassed by everything and roll eyes at parents. I think I think that's probably about it. Oh, speaking of middle school, there is a really funny new animated series on Netflix that I stumbled across called Big Mouth. It is so no holds barred, and it's done by really really funny uh, comics that that I uh, really respect. And it's 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 so rare that I laugh out loud at things, and I laughed out loud at that. Oh, and another thing that uh, Christina Pizitsky, who was a uh, guest on this uh, show, and I hope to have her actually come on again, um, has a Netflix stand-up special uh, called uh, Mother Inferior. And it's, again, it's a laugh out loud funny. And these are not ads for Netflix. These are just things that made me laugh. And uh, God knows that we need to laugh where wherever we, we can. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Robbie. And she writes about her depression, lying in bed with the devil as he whispers, a few, mo- a few more minutes, never killed anyone about being a sex crime victim, being an observer to someone else's life. Wow, that is really, really profound. And I imagine what she's kind of referring to is that feeling of being dissociated from the feelings that we want to experience. But because something has kind of been disconnected in us to have to survive that event or the events after it, that feeling disconnected uh, is kind of what we're, the state that we're left in. Um, snapshot from her life. Uh, she also deals with anxiety and she writes, coming to after fainting, finding myself on the floor, simultaneously urinating and throwing up. This is after a panic attack. Wow, that is intense. That is intense. Man, urinating and throwing up. The, the comic in me wants to try to find a joke there, but the decent human being in me is like, no, this is not the time to make a urine or a vomit joke. Um, anyway, sending send in you some, uh, some love, Robbie. This is a shame and secret survey, and I just want to read part of it. Um, this was filled out by a woman who calls herself More Secrets Than Victoria. Uh, she's bisexual in her 20s, raised, uh, she says, in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, I would beg to differ. And um, to the question, uh, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Uh, she writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, she writes, my father was very physically and emotionally abusive to me, so I always thought that my mother was, quote, the good parent, just by comparison alone. However, since I have done some work getting over the trauma that my father blatantly caused me, I've begun to realize that my mother might not have been as perfect as I thought. There were no physical boundaries in my family. My mother would go to the washroom with the door open and talk to me while she was in there. She would change around me and fished for positive comments about her naked body by putting herself down, her breasts or her stomach, and looking at me to tell her that I thought she was beautiful. She always talked about my body, told me I had a nice butt, and would always try to squeeze it even when I was uncomfortable with it. She would talk about the way that I should get my hair cut so that the ends would curl around my developing breasts to highlight them. 
When I was really little, I got pinworms a few times, and she would, quote, investigate. She would give me tablets as a cure, but she would also go into my butthole with her fingers or Q-tips. She said she did this to help me, but I'm not sure. I also got a lot of yeast infections when I was younger, and she would make me lie down in my room with my legs wide open so air and light could get to my vagina, and she would walk in to see how I was doing. Her demeanor would change when she did this, like she was a nurse or something weird. She gave me, quote, the talk when I was way too young, but it wasn't just, quote, the talk. It was more like grown-up advice, like how to give a good blowjob or talk about intimate details of her relationship with my father. She would talk to me about how sensitive her nipples were or how my father would only tell her he loved her after sex. She also asked me inappropriately after I became sexually active, asking me details about my experiences. I was overly sexual when I was younger. I masturbated in public areas of my house until my mother told me that it made my father uncomfortable. I was too young to even understand what I was doing. She always asked me why I was so sexual. Had anyone touched me? She told me that if anyone had molested me, that I should tell her and she would kill them. But now that I'm looking back, I think that she might have caused this. I don't know. My mother loved me, and she was probably just trying to take care of me. I'm so confused. Have you shared these things with others? I've told my husband about the emotional and physical abuse by my dad, but I haven't told him about the possible sexual abuse by my mother. I don't know if I'm overreacting or making things up or imagining them or if they count or if she meant them. Uh, I think she only did them because she loves me. She was trying her best as a singleish mom with an absent alcoholic husband. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? Confused, a little sick to my stomach, remembering the things that my mom did to me. The things that your mom has done to you, if Child Protective Services heard this, would have you removed from the home. Um this, I mean, they have ways that they need evidence corroborated, but if these things could be proven or corroborated, um, you would absolutely have been removed from the home because that is sexual abuse and it is abuse by a thousand cuts. Um, I mean, she is treating you like an object and it doesn't matter what her intent was. I would love to know the intent of some of the things that my mom did. And she did some of the things that you describe here. And I didn't give weight to them until I was, uh, you know, in my 40s. And and I still sometimes question myself about them. And that is normal. That is, for some reason, that's what uh, survivors do. But let me tell you, the things that you described fit a pattern. If a single one of these things had occurred, it might be something that you could go, well, what was the rest of her treatment of you like? But your mom fits a a mold that is that I have seen dozens and dozens and dozens of times in my interaction with people in support groups in my reading of these surveys. And I really encourage you to reach out to somebody and talk. Uh, about this. And um, uh, if you want to contact me if, um, to uh, 
share your experience because I want to write a book about this. I mentioned this a couple of episodes ago. Um, and I also know of uh, a private support group that is specifically for people who had mothers uh, like this or female caregivers. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by CK and about her anxiety. She writes, my head feels like a balloon floating away from my body. And about her codependency, my boundaries are all over the place. Where I should have light fences, I have impenetrable fortresses or open fields. God, that is such a good one. You know, the more I learn about all of the shit that we talk about, it just so often comes down to boundaries and recognizing our needs and advocating for ourselves and recognizing other people's boundaries. Um, that is... You, so, uh, sums it up right there. This is an awful some moment filled out by Asshat5000. I felt like when the Asshat5000 came out, I felt like they didn't make as many improvements over the Asshat4000 as I expected. Uh, it didn't handle as well. Um, the ass didn't fit in the hat uh, quite as snugly as the 3000 did, and I'm looking forward to the Asset 6000. <laughs> this is her awfulsome moment. When I was 13, my father took it upon himself to give me the sex talk while we were sitting in the car one day. He started with the usual use of protection so you don't get pregnant stuff and talked a little about consent, and then he said, also make sure you use a condom so you don't get chlamydia like I did. Thanks, Dad. Thank you for sharing that. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself some random recovering asshole and about his depression. He writes, so many great ideas, so many things to create, so much time to succeed, no will or energy. Maybe tomorrow? Question mark. About his alcoholism. Addiction is getting to hug a dearly departed just one more time. Oh my God. Dude, you could do this professionally. These are so good. Uh, about his codependency, I breathe out so you can breathe in. And about being a sex crime victim, uh, I'm male, she's female. I am, quote, lucky. Disregard the fact that my body, mind, soul, and spirit still aches. Thank you for that. Yeah, that, um, that double standard, uh, is so it pisses me off so much that you know if you if you were to switch the genders um, people would see clearly if it was if it was switched but for some reason when uh, you know it's a 14 year old boy and a 35 year old woman uh, he's lucky oh unless people find her unattractive and then they think it's abuse um, this is from the babysitter survey, and this was filled out by Aggressive Gum Chewer. And she writes, um, when I was age 8 to 11, my brothers and I would put on private shows for the teenage girl who was babysitting us. We would all enter the dark closet, and the audience would shine flashlights on us like spotlights uh, and shouting requests. Uh, did something sexual happen? 
Uh, yes, we would remove our pants and fondle ourselves in front of the babysitter. We would also take secret showers in public so we could spy on each other. Uh, did you ever tell anyone? Once our parents came home early and walked in on this happening, and they were very, very angry at us kids, me especially, since I was the oldest. We never saw that babysitter again. And of course, you know, reading this, um, I'm wondering to myself, well, what if the babysitter wasn't the one suggesting it or touching them, what had happened to them that that they were so sexualized and so uh, at, at such an early age? And I'm not I'm not saying that the babysitter didn't bear responsibility in seeing that that was inappropriate and that she should have said something to the to the parents. Um, so continuing, uh, what feelings come up remembering this? I didn't understand then, and the memory only recently came back to me. I have a lot of anger and sadness that the babysitter, who obviously knew better, allowed and encouraged it. Regret and shame, since I fully participated in the acts as a child and thought I was being, quote, cool and adult-like. Uh, do you feel any damn? And try to remember you were a child. And yes, the babysitter was probably a child, too, Um do you feel any damage was done? There was a lot of damage done to my sexual identity. I'm usually unable to have sex or reach orgasm now as an adult, and not much of anything turns me on anymore. The act was innocent, but not natural at all. Um, oh, and I forgot to describe uh, the environment that she was raised in. Uh, she describes as totally chaotic, a narcissistic father and co-narcissistic mother with a very intensely traditional Catholic household. And then here to me, this to me is the smoking gun. Uh, have you ever been the victim of sexual abuse uh, outside of the events described here? And she writes, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. And of course, in traditional style, it's so obviously uh, something that is fucked up. Um, uh, she writes, uh, my father used to take baths with me until the age of 11. And several times a priest would ask me about my, quote, sexual sins during confession, asking me to go into detail. There might be more, but I am sure I have blocked it out. I can tell you there doesn't need to be any more for that to have severely, severely uh, damaged somebody's sexuality, their ability to trust how they view the world, how they view themselves, uh, their fear of intimacy, on and on and on and on. And I hope that you can... Um, let the shame go around the things um, that you quote-unquote participated in because you had been sexualized by your sick, sick father who would then go to church on Sunday. Um, this is a happy moment filled out by a guy who calls himself, all right, I admit I am a lemon. And he writes... The level of excitement I got from hearing you read my awfulsome moment on the last episode was my first genuine smile in over a week. I've been listening so attentively, hoping to hear one of my surveys on the air, and that brought more joy than anything else has in a while. Maybe I have to set my standards a little higher now that I'm reading this in print. Thank you for that, though. I needed it. You know, low standards are my siren song, and if I can't... Uh, meet somebody's low standard, um, then I lower my standard for how I view myself. And that is a vicious circle. And I don't even know what that means. I'm just running my mouth at this point. 
Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? I think it's my turn this time to do something. The joy that that brought gave me the motive to sign up for Patreon to donate. Thanks for all that you do. Now, you may be asking yourself, Paul, isn't this just a cheap way for you to remind us that we can be monthly subscribers through Patreon? Yes, it is. That's exactly what this is. Don't mistake it for anything else. Uh, while I'm happy to read that uh, I helped that man smile, I'm even happier to think that one of you might hear this and become a monthly donor through Patreon. Wow, mean DJ voice making an appearance. I never thought that he would want to uh, to help out the show. Oh, Paul, I do what I can. I do what I can. Rockin' the Quad Cities. Paul Gilmartin gonna do a happy moment and he's gonna bring it out because he likes to fuck things up. I was wondering when you were gonna turn on me. What the fuck is that noise? You are just weird. Uh, I want to share a, a happy moment of mine that I was thinking about the other day uh, to, to end the podcast. And it's it's such a, uh, I don't know, mild one, but the feeling that I got from it, I will remember until the day I die. And I was lining up, I was playing in my hockey league, and I was lining up for a face-off. And there was this moment where, you know, there was like, I don't know, maybe 10, 20 seconds while the referee was doing something, talking to somebody. And I was just standing there and this overpowering feeling of being at peace with the world and feeling gratitude that I was able to still play hockey, that I could afford to pay to play hockey that I have a job that I love that I feel connected in this world and I remember looking up at the light and just almost feeling like it was the sun like I just felt this warmth and I thought oh my god I want to feel like this all the time and while I haven't felt like that since that, I've had moments that kind of come close. And I think my ability to feel moments like that is directly related to the relationships that I have made in my support groups and letting safe people get close to me, opening up to those people, and keeping toxic people at a distance because I now believe that I am worth it. I am worth feeling safe and happy or at the very least a sense of peace when there is chaos or uncertainty or whatever it may be. And those are the kind of the moments that I look for in life. Um, I know that material shit is not going to fix any emptiness I might have inside me. It might be exciting for a week to have something, but it's those connections. And anybody that's out there suffering in silence, give it a shot. Give it a shot. 
You don't have to commit to doing it the rest of your life. Just give it a shot. Get out of your comfort zone. I'm so, so grateful that I did because I would have hated to have given up and missed out on this and that moment, on that rink. I will never forget the details of that. I remember everything about how it felt. It's like in that moment, it's like my soul, like all the work that I had done in the support groups and therapy and seeing a psychiatrist, it's like it, it's like my soul just opened up and I finally felt all the things that I've been blessed with in my life. And it was amazing. And then I got in a fight. No. <laughs> I, I just got a little self-conscious that I was being a little too, uh, I don't know, something. Anyway, I hope you got something out of this, uh, this episode. And uh, I hope after 104 minutes of listening this, that you realize that you're not alone and there is hope. And uh, help is out there. And uh, thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.